Right. Sorry, I had to dig up. I had to dig up this article. Uh, the article was uh, written by somebody called Lukas Marek, pronounced Lukas Marek, and the title of the article is "We haven't grown potatoes in the Czech Republic in 30 years," says the expert. So he interviews the polar explorer Daniel Nivelt, and we get to hear about the warning and the consequences of pollution, climate change, and so forth. So keep in mind, meteorologists and scientists, what they're doing is they're taking measurements uh, of the weather, temperatures, types of gases emitted in the air for the decades and centuries. And when they go to Antarctica, as I mentioned in a previous episode, what they're doing is they're, thro they're throwing and taking carrot samples. If you ever seen that in construction, you see a big drill, they go down X amount of meters, and then they establish what belonged to which period in time. And they can do the same with ice. So to, to give a, a rough analogy, uh, they go down one meter, that corresponds to the last uh, 80 years. They go down two meters, that corresponds to the last 300 years. And then within that, they will take different uh, samples and they, just like you would read a ruler, they can go into time. And as they go into time, then they run those samples to, through labs and they look at the different gas combinations and so forth. So as they do that, they pick up on trends and they historically look at what the weather must have been and so on and so forth. So here is the report to the journalist by Daniel Nivelt. I'm just going to read it out. We will have problems with water. We do not grow potatoes and we start to have problems with wheat and barley. So meaning you won't be able to grow the potatoes and you're going to have trouble with cereal, uh, wheat and barley, for example. The year 2020 was the warmest in Europe in the history of measurement, in the history of measuring the temperatures. It was an exceptional year. It started in early February with the highest temperatures measured in Antarctica. More than 20 degrees Celsius was measured on Seymour Island, the Seymour Island. It is only about 70 kilometers east of the Czech station of Johann Gregor Mendel, in Antarctica that is, and we also measured 17 to 18 degrees Celsius at our meteorological stations during this period. This was a very special event in Antarctica, says Daniel Nivelt, head of the Czech Antarctic Research Program, listing the main events of last year. According to Friday's report by the EU Copernicus Service, it has matched the warmest year of 2016 so far worldwide. But what was much more important than the maximum temperature itself was that it was almost a week. That means it lasted for a week. This is an awfully long period of high temperatures which during the day culminated between about 12 to a maximum of 20 degrees Celsius. But even at night, it was around 8 to 10 degrees centigrade, added Nivelt. The reason why, according to him, last year was so special. This meant a very rapid melting of the local glaciers and permafrost. So tropical temperatures in Siberia do, do not really matter if it's for a short time. Uh, the issue is if it goes on, it affects. So, in the spring and summer, the climate had a similar effect on the other side of the planet, the Arctic. At first, this was a very pronounced in Siberia, where 
High temperatures in June caused an oil spill in Norilsk, where about 20 tons of oil were released into the soil and the Ambanaya River due to the thawed soil from the damaged reservoir. At the end of the month, a record maximum temperature measured behind the Arctic Circle of 38 degrees Celsius arrived. It was announced by the Siberian city of Verkoyansk. According to Nivelt, the main problem in this respect is the duration of the warm period rather than just its increasingly increasing intensity. According to the scientist, permafrost thaws because both the maximum summer temperatures are rising, but mainly because summer is longer. And according to a Czech expert, this can be partly explained at first glance, perhaps not obvious to everyone. The phenomenon shown in the following picture of the World Meteorological Organization. So on this picture, you get to see the differences between January and May 2020 from the average temperatures of 1951 to 1980. So when you look at the map, you can see that the warming uh, is actually extremely acute all over northern and eastern Europe, so all the way up to the Arctic and a spot on the uh, Antarctic. That's pretty scary. So it can be seen from the picture that the temperatures in the given period deviated the most dramatically by as much as 10 degrees centigrade, mainly in the polar regions of Siberia and also in Antarctica. So I was commenting on the picture. According to Nivelt, this is precisely the consequences of the long summer and shorter winter in these areas. Temperature fluctuations between periods are naturally huge in the Arctic. And when, for example, in Siberia, the number of days above 30 degrees Celsius increases and the number of around minus 50 degrees Celsius decreases, it makes a much larger difference in deviation from the average temperature that in temperate, than in temperate climate zone, where the different temperature differences between winter and summer are significantly smaller. Now, if you're into agriculture, they call that the stress. So if you are growing in a, an environment which has a similar climate year-round, uh, you get a, an easier crop, you get a softer crop, and you have different issues. But it's not the same as if you have periods which are at minus, minus 10. That actually stresses the growth for the producers of agriculture. So imagine that on a larger scale for the planet. So sorry for that little interrupt, uh, interjection there. Record climatic events did not escape Greenland last year either, where they demanded a high tax. Last year, the maximum area on which the glacier melted was recorded in the Greenland Glacier Shield. The melting, which until 30 to 40 years ago concerned only the southern sector of Greenland, today practically surrounds the entire Greenland ice sheet. Ice sheet. And it thaws us far beyond the Arctic Circle in much of the northern parts. Of course, those values are higher from year to year. It is possible that in a year or two, we will have more records again. It's actually more likely than possible, concludes Nivelt. In addition, several alarming reports from foreign scientific teams came from Greenland last year. Probably the most prominent of them was prognosis that the Greenland ice sheets have already melted to such an extent that they will inevitably disappear. In, example, in addition, for example, in Arctic Canada fell apart, uh, the last untouched shelf glacier. In Antarctica, Scientists made significant progress last year in research into the cause of the rapid melting of the Thwaites Glacier. According to the findings of the American-British team, it is riddled with canals through which warm seawater flows. 
Thwaites Glacier has earned the nickname Doomsday Glacier due to its size and melting rate. If it collapsed, it would raise ocean levels by 65 centimeters, according to last year's study. Now, um, if you keep in mind that uh, people are looking at an increase of the Mediterranean by one meter as the accelerated compared to the other oceans and so forth, other seas, uh, due to its position uh, within land and so forth. And that has the most dramatic consequences. Now, on a global uh, scale, 65 centimeters, although it's less than one meter, it's more than half, right? But that has disastrous consequences. Uh, I think people, it doesn't sink in how much of a change of the landscape this is going to be and how much migration of population once should be planning for. So I'll carry on with the article. Nivelt added that although it is not yet known when its total melting could take place, it is expected to take decades. However, according to him, constantly improving models generally bring the time of such catastrophic scenarios closer rather than the other way around. So once you've got disruption, it tends to start happening more and more often. And uh, here's an example of it, the Philippines. And uh, it seems far away, but all the, that area, if you're in the Philippines, you've got risks of floods in the south in the south more and more often it's a disastrous situation and uh maybe i'll uh, do a recording of it in the in the future for now i'll just carry on with the article everything of course has to do with human influence scientists have already clearly quantified that about 60 to 70 percent of the current warming is affected by human activity we know this clearly the experts identified the main cause of the mentioned events Scientists can verify this in two simple methods. One way is to look back at the geological past, so how was it when you weren't here? The expert named the first of them. According to him, the comparison is based on the fact that Homo sapiens appeared in the last ice age. All previous interglacial periods, without human influence that is, can thus be compared to the current one, in which man has already mastered all continents and is dominant on the planet. We can compare what the concentrations of natural greenhouse gases were compared to today, what the temperatures were, and also how fast they changed. And that's the most dramatic. The rate of current temperature change of melt or melting of glaciers is 100 to 1,000 times faster than due to natural processes in previous interglacial times, says Nivelt. According to him, the second opinion is to model future development on the basis of parameters that have been measured today for a long time, and the basis on how they behaved in the distant past. Between models that take into account measurements from modern times and models that take into account the course of climate from prehistory, they show the difference that is attributed to man. According to them, man causes an increase in about 0.7% of global temperature and nature about 0.3 percent it simply came to our notice then of course it simply came to our attention is what i mean sorry i'm i'm um, translating as i read because it's, it's not written in english so i apologize for sometimes the um the the choice of words and the sequence but i'm trying to get the uh, the message across and uh, i uh, i should have translated it and read the translation but i'm trying to do this as i go and i apologize for the limitations Back to the text. Um, so, of course, with a certain degree of error, 
However, it is constantly decreasing over time with more and more studies and data, and we can calculate better and more accurately, adds Nivelt, adding that human influence is clearly dominant. At the end of the year, the largest wandering ice flow, which in December began to approach the British Overseas Territory of South Georgia, also attracted attention. She broke off on July 12, 2017 from the Larson Sea ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula. Rising temperature extremes can be expected in our latitudes in the coming decades. In addition to the increasingly frequent and intense summer heat waves, this will be associated with recurring milder winters. In the Czech Republic, according to Nivelt, this will primarily mean a problem with water. All the water drains from us. All the rivers drain our land, flow away from us, and we will have to catch water in some way. We need it for agriculture and industry, and in addition to dams, we will also have to catch water in the wetlands and blind branches of rivers that used to be common in our landscape. The climate in Central Europe will thus become increasingly close to the Mediterranean climate. This means that in 30 to 50 years, we'll be able to grow citrus, for example, but we no longer will be able to grow potatoes, and we'll start to have problems with wheat and barley, which we have traditionally grown here. Uh, that is the Czech Republic. Daniel Nivelt is Czech. There will not be enough moisture for these crops to grow. Globally, climate change will not only damage agriculture, but above all, it will reduce living space due to rising ocean levels, which will be linked to the huge migration of people whose homes will disappear underwater. Unfortunately, estimates of how much the sea level will rise by 21100 are deteriorating due to ever-improving models. So the more we know, the more we see that actually it's going to go faster and faster. Ten years ago, there was talk of 25 to 40 centimeters. Now optimists estimate one meter. Uh, remember the Mediterranean? The sober estimate is probably two meters, according to Nivelt, and the catastrophic ones say up to six meters. Now, six meters, uh, I need to try to get a picture of that. Uh, that has uh, dire consequences. Um, however fast it happens is however disastrous it is. If humanity behaves like it's behaving today and keeps doing so, that's what the future will look like. Nivelt also mentions another problem that is not talked about so much and that is expected to spread, which is various diseases such as malaria and Ebola. From the tropical to the temperature zone, the area where the conditions for the spread of these diseases and the survival of the viruses of bacteria that cause them will be ideal and will increase, which will make a lot of places in uninhabitable. Remember that a lot of these diseases come out of Southeast Asia. It's because of the tropical and high level of humidity that for bacteria and so forth uh, are ideal con conditions for these to, to grow, flow, and spread. So imagine if more of the world has those temperatures and humidity levels, well, you know, it becomes a playing field for a great spread. Daniel Devil goes on to, the Paris Agreement can no longer be fulfilled. Even the tightening of the world's climate commitments can no longer calm us down at this time. According to Nivelt, it is probably too late for their fulfillment. Agreements such as the one in Paris that we should stick to 1.5 degrees centigrade since pre-industrial times are no longer on paper. We're no longer able to achieve this today because it is unrealistic. It seems that we will reach this value in 10 to 15 years. Today, we already know that we should talk about 2.5 or 3 degrees centigrade. But if we start immediately, so basically, 
as I was mentioning, either we get on with it and we still have to deal with a lot of fallout or uh, we will be talking about survival. It sounds dramatic and I wish I could soften it, but this is real. The climate has a long inertia and even if we now completely stop all greenhouse gas production, keep in mind, that's it, right? So if we do stop all greenhouse gas production, the temperature will not remain below the level of one and a half degrees from pre-industrial times. Okay, so even if we were to cut the tap now, we cannot make the 1.5. Even if we stop production of greenhouse gases completely, immediately it is estimated that we'll continue to warm for another 30 or 70 years, explains Divild. Why the main goal of the Paris Agreement is no longer achievable today. Boom. I hope this sinks in. It's an important point. Of course, this does not mean that humanity should give up its climate commitments. Quite the opposite. Politicians need to start listening to scientists and act immediately instead of setting targets by 2040 and so on. Otherwise, we need to prepare for significantly different climatic conditions on planet Earth than we have known from the recent past. That was a very soft ending that Daniel Divelt offered and it's part of his politeness and kindness because he's a very nice person and I remember sitting through and being surprised that not more people knew about him. But um, it's also a very nice and accurate description meaning we don't have much of a choice if we want to stand a chance and right now if we did turn off the tap and cut all greenhouse gas um, we would be still going on that spiral for 20 to 30 years. This is bad, but it's still better than what will happen if we do not turn off the tap. There we are. So I hope this um, loose translation was not too painful for your ears. I hope the information was conveyed despite the stumble read, mumble and stumble. And um, until the next recording, Thank you very much for listening. All right. Just uh, we keep hearing 2030, 2030, 2030, climate change. Um, so essentially what it means is by 2030, we know where we are on the acceleration of climate change or deceleration of climate change. And it's not about what do we organize and start at 2030. It's what do we do now? How do we keep doing it, increase it, scale it, so that by 2030 we've reversed the situation with emissions, reversed or stopped or, you know. So, you know, the question is not do we start at 2030? No, it should have, and, you know, we have to do basically whatever can be done now. It's not about looking for that ideal solution, whilst it's a very, very good idea. Uh, there's basically a need to convert, change, um, and pass on to all solutions which do not uh, release the emissions that we are avoiding, we're trying to avoid. So if we had, in the days of the Kyoto Protocol, if we had enforced legislation and policy, we would be dealing with a different picture right now. But a lot of the catastrophic scenarios and so forth that seem like far away back in the day of the Kyoto Protocol today in light of the Paris Agreement are visible.
palpable. Ask the people in Greenland how they're doing. Ask the people in Iceland whether they think climate change is something in a distant future. And that's for one thing. Uh, all the different other effects of migration. Exactly. So by 2030, a lot of things will have added up to this disastrous scenario of the future because we, some people, will have their feet in water a few times a year, literally speaking. So the question now is, how do we get everyone on board? Because just like the sentence, united we stand, divided we fall, well, very much so. Behind climate change, either we all get on it, or basically we don't have much of a chance, and that's even compromised now. We don't have much of a chance to um, get to 2030 and beyond with an environment that we can now legacy. So recognize. So if we think of our legacy, which is the future, the children, the planet, the food, the, the amount of people, and all these different things, for a balance to be found, we need to start applying every option we can. Every option in the book, whether it's average, a lot of people are contesting that solar has limitations and so forth, wind has limitations. However, we still need to just develop, keep going, Solutions which are not perfect but are better than the actual scenario need to be enforced. Double down. The great will come, but the good will have to do until then. Yes. So I found um, someone who I've met who works uh, actually in the Czech Republic. And uh, I was very happy to go to a presentation that he was giving of his expeditions to, the, um, to Antarctica. And he takes with him the Czech expeditions, and he works at the University of uh, Brno, called Masaryk University. So I'm going to uh, read a few of the comments he's made. And uh, he's a very serious chap, uh, highly talented, extremely communicative, and very knowledgeable. And uh, he stays within his lane. I think the world would benefit if he would go out and speak to a lot more audiences and so forth, because he's just extremely communicative and highly talented. And he makes everything look effortless. That's how talented he is. 